Ashley, this is as real as it gets. This is Phoebe Price, and you're listening to the UCW Radio Show. In your face. The number you have reached, 911, has been changed to a non-published number. You're listening to UCW Radio. In your face. All right, welcome to another uh, segment of the UCW Radio Show. Uh, Today we have a great guest on tap for you. Uh, He's a Wall Street Journal staff reporter. His his background is pretty eclectic. Uh, From being an author, a contributor to CNBC, and he's also a singer-songwriter. I mean, he's... Again, his background is is pretty intense, and he's bringing a lot of um, what he believes in to his own environment. All right, he's also uh, he also interviews a lot of top uh, celebrities, uh, sports stars, and entertainers, so on and so forth, and kind of telling uh, a story that you really don't hear um, a lot uh, beyond. You know, he tells a story beyond the sound bites. Okay, but uh, again, he's on deck. On deck, he's waiting to come on the show. Uh, so let's uh, let's not have him waiting too long. All right, uh, here we go. Well, let's bring Lee Hawkins, Wall Street Journal staff reporter, singer, songwriter. Uh, again, without further ado, let's just bring him on the UCW Radio Show. All right, Lee, welcome to the UCW Radio Show. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Um, I, I'm actually excited to have you on the show. Uh, your your background's pretty interesting. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I try not to be one dimensional. Yeah, no, you're definitely one not one dimensional. You know, Wall Street Journal staff reporter. You're an author, uh, CNBC contributor, uh, and you're a recording artist slash songwriter. Uh, to the point that you were a grand prize winner, from what I understand. Yes, in the R&B category, I did win it for a song called I Love You, Woman. I've really been interested in music my whole life. Uh, I grew up in the church, and my family sings gospel music. And so I grew up playing drums behind my father Mm -hmm. and singing in the choir. Uh, And it really kind of stayed with me for the rest, you know, into my adult life. Oh, and you did well with it because winning that, uh, being a grand prize winner for, for that John Lennon songwriting contest is uh, no easy task. It's not. I, w- I was away from music for a while, you know, because I was covering, um, I, w- I, I was working in Milwaukee and I was doing a lot of uh, live performances. I was singing at, you know, the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, games and the Milwaukee Bucks games and Summerfest World Music Festival and I had a band and just a lot of momentum and then I got a job with the Journal and I moved to Detroit to cover the uh, the uh, auto companies mm-hmm. and when I did everything just kind of because I was so busy with that I didn't get to make music as much and finally I joined the church choir and that kind of helped me uh, with the music. Uh, bug and everything but it wasn't until about two years ago that i started writing uh more music with my songwriting partner george nash jr who is also the producer for r&b singer named eric benet so um that song i love you woman was one of 
12 songs that we had written. And after I won the John Lennon songwriting contest, we decided to release an album on iTunes called Midnight Conversations. So, um, you know, just so people could check out the music. A lot of it is love songs, and you just don't hear love songs anymore. So I figured, hey, why not put some out there? Yeah, you, you mean you don't hear the love songs you used to hear in the 70s, that's for sure. You know, even the 90s. I mean, um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people um, in music, and the ones that I really enjoy the most are the songwriters. I've interviewed Diane Warren, and I've interviewed Holland Dozier Holland, who were the guys that wrote all the, the hits for uh, the Motown era people. And what's fascinating about all of those people is they say that music works in cycles. Right now, dance music is really the phenomenon. But a lot of these these people, Lionel Richie included, believe that love songs will come back. Um, There's a place for them in TV and film, Mm -hmm. uh, but also on the radio. Without a doubt, there's a place for them. Um, You know, I, I guess like everything else, you have a cycle. You know, business cycle, music cycle. Uh, you know, things just just change as as time goes on. But you, you that things definitely uh, cycle on. Um, so yeah, you're right about that. Uh, l- let me ask you something, Lee. Now, and, and I, I guess our listeners would want to know this. Now, again, with all the stuff you're doing now, I, I want to kind of like reel back a little bit. How did you mm-hmm. get involved in journalism? How did how did everything start for you? Oh, that that's kind of a cool story. You know, when I was young, I was in, like, student council and everything, mm-hmm. and uh, I was really interested in politics. And more, more than politics, I was more interested in civil rights. And I was class president, like, all four years in high school. And then in college, I was involved in student government. But then uh, one of the things I would do on the side is I would write uh, these articles for the school newspaper, and they were kind enough to accept them. And they were usually opinion articles. They were highly opinionated. Uh, They were, uh, looking back now, read some of them, it's almost embarrassing because they weren't very good. But, (laughs) But I cared a lot, and I was very passionate. And after I did a couple of those, the uh, newspaper guys uh, invited me to be on their editorial board and to get more active in the newspaper while I was in college at the University of Wisconsin. So when I did that, um, then uh, I started kind of writing these op-ed pieces for different places. I think I wrote one for the Dallas Morning News. I wrote one for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And over time, I was able to get myself a job at the Wisconsin State Journal, a paper in Madison, Mm -hmm. Wisconsin, where I attended college. And I started there, and I just kind of moved up to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and then I got recruited uh, to the Wisconsin State Journal. But newspaper, I never never majored in journalism. I majored in political science Mm -hmm. because I thought I was going to be a politician. But one thing about when you're a journalist and you get to get an inside look at the life of a politician, um, it's pretty fascinating because I knew in a minute that I would never want to be a politician just from covering politicians. Uh, The reality set in, huh? (laughs) Yeah, and I think it was because, you know, I realized that I wasn't cut out for, um, you know, being always working for everybody. And feeling that you know, if you're not a pub, if you're a public servant, then that means 
that when you're sitting down at a public at a restaurant with your family, that means that anybody can come up and talk to you. True. And you know what? I'm not that kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I care about issues, and the issues that I care about, I'll be active in. But I just didn't think that I had the uh, I had it in me to be that person. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, your whole life was a fishbowl, you know. Well, you know, I mean, any any, any public figure, uh, politician, uh, uh, actor, uh, musician, you know, when you're out there in in the public eye, you know, people uh, they they think that they're a part of you, that they can actually sit down and talk to you at any time they want. And you know what? I actually don't mind that. You know, I was talking to a, a good friend of mine who's a journalist uh, mm-hmm. on Fox. And he said, this guy came up to him at the airport, and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't mean to inconvenience you, but I just wanted to say hello because I watch you all the time. And he said, oh, no, we love it. We want you to recognize us. And it's funny, being recognized and talking to people that are engaged in your work um, is is really cool. So it's not that I didn't like, I don't, that I don't like the public life. It's just that I didn't feel that I would be doing the public a service mm-hmm. because I I don't always feel like uh, that I would be working nine, you know, 100 hours a week or whatever, uh, you know, on on public issues and, and policy. I just didn't think I was cut out for that aspect of it. Yeah, well, I mean, you're definitely cut out for what you're doing now. You know, you're very successful at it. Yeah, you know, I mean, you are. Um, I mean, you, you know, you went... Again, from uh, doing uh, the uh, journalism in Wisconsin, how did you get to the Wall Street Journal? Well, like I said, I was at those other two papers. In both papers, I was covering business. And when you cover business, you're really judged on um, the kinds of stories that you're able to break. And Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to have people that took time to to teach me. Um, You know, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, when I was a young reporter, had all of these talented people. As a matter of fact, they won like three Pulitzer Prizes in the past five years. And, um, you know, so I learned from them, and then I got the opportunity to continue going. Um, One thing that I will tell you is that learning to cover these publicly traded companies has really helped me in my job now. Because in my job now, I actually have this new niche called the business of celebrity. And what I do, my my theory and my concept is that a lot of these celebrities in this economy, in the pop culture economy, are businesses. Mm-hmm. If you people laugh at the Kardashians, but the reality is the Kardashians are a thriving business. Paris Hilton, as far as all the people that think that she doesn't do anything, she grosses ninety million dollars in wholesale revenues on her perfume brand alone mm-hmm. every year. And she gets a 7% licensing fee from that. So what I do is I study uh, the people that work behind these people. I spend a lot of time with them. I get a good understanding of the business. And then I sit down and I interview the actual people. Mm -hmm. My next one comes out tonight, and it's uh, with Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta, who are the founders or the guys who bought UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, yep. out of bankruptcy. Yep. And uh, what a fascinating group of guys they are. Yeah, they they took UFC, was in bankruptcy. Uh, I think Semaphore Entertainment owned it. And, uh, yeah, they took it over and they changed the culture. They changed the, they, they created a, 
a, uh, a sector of uh, sports <laughs> for all intents and purposes. Right, and the storyline is, you know, no different really than any other company. So, like, if you cover General Motors, uh, you still want to tell the anecdotes about the drama in the boardroom and the people that are working on the front lines in the union or working uh, in China in a factory. Well, when you apply that stuff to celebrities, you there are great anecdotes, too, about people like 50 Cent, who was able to... Uh, um, ask vitamin water for stock instead of just cash when they asked him to endorse uh, one of their flavors. And when that company was bought out by Coca-Cola, he got he got it's it's reported that he got a 100 million dollar windfall mm-hmm. based on the stock alone. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is a business person too. And what I try to do is to show uh, the work ethic and. Some of these uh, celebrities that have been successful and then others who haven't been so successful in business and also taking time to speak to people like Michael Vick, mm-hmm. who um, has had his brand challenged about his his attempt to try to bring his brand back. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's, I'm happy you're doing that, actually, because I think a lot of people, they see these figures in, in the public eye. Again, you said the Kardashians, Paris Hilton, Michael Vick, you know, uh, whoever it may be. Yeah, they, they're their own brands. And I, I think one of the, I mean, they follow in suit with Trump. Donald Trump is a brand. And uh, he's the greatest example of success, uh, I think, in my opinion, uh, in regards to uh, branding yourself and you know putting your name on everything and making money off of it. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, it, what's great about that, you, you raise a very good point about Donald Trump, because Donald Trump is not an actor, he's not an athlete, he's just, he's a businessman. And there are a lot of us out here that have brands. And you have to really protect your brand. No matter what you're doing, uh, you can be an accountant, you can be uh, have any job, but the perception is, you know, they always say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Mm-hmm. But I'll take that a step further and I'll say, it's actually who knows you and what they say about you. Oh. Because nine out of ten times uh, when you're going for a job or uh, even if someone is just asking, hey, what do you think of him, you know, that perception that people have could affect your opportunities. Mm-hmm. That that doesn't mean that you worry about what people think about you, but in a professional capacity, you should always think, what is the brand that I want to represent when I go to school every day? Mm-hmm. What is the brand I want to represent when I walk into my office every day? And at the end of the day, when I leave this earth, what can I really say that I was able to accomplish, not just for myself, but for other people? Mm-hmm. No, those are good points for, for sure, and I think, I think it's just an uh, an adjustment of our thinking. It is, and I'm blessed to be in a field where, like in journalism, you can, um, you know, I still am one of these people that really believes in it, and I think that we can expose the truth mm-hmm. uh, in so many cases. You know, um, you know the Trayvon Martin story. That was a story that really didn't break. Uh, until weeks after the actual incident occurred, but there were reporters that went out there and broke the story. Now, we don't know what the ultimate uh, outcome will be of that case, but it is something, no matter what side of the issue that you're on, that you want to know about and you want that information. Mm -hmm. And so 
the reporters involved in that story will never forget for the when they retire at their retirement party that's what people are going to say this person was intimately involved in the Trayvon Martin story and helped you know helped uh, the public uh, get information and that's a key thing, help. You know, a lot of people look at reporters and they say, well, they're just reporting the tragedy and everything else. But the reality is you're providing a platform where someone's story can be told. It's, you know, it's one of the um, the things that that when you have any level of influence in society or you're in a position uh, to influence society, it's really important to take your your job you know, like really seriously and to, and to have some level of um, compassion in doing it and, and sensitivity around, am I really treating everybody fairly in the way that I approach this story? Mm-hmm. You know, because um, you can do a lot of damage if your facts aren't straight. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I see it, I think, even in the Trayvon Martin story, there were some, some wrong facts that went out there. And uh, when that happens, you lose the public's confidence. I mean, do you think that comes from, you know, just uh, someone just running, trying to get a story out there as soon as possible without uh, confirming facts and just trying to beat the other guy to the story? I think that, you know, it is a hyper-competitive business. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of it can sometimes be that. You never know why people make mistakes. I'll tell you... um, in a newspaper, if you're reading the newspaper and you see a correction, that means that that is a big issue in that newsroom. A correction, if you ever make a mistake, it's not something that you should really take lightly. Mm-hmm. Some people you've seen that have had these long corrections, and you really think about, well, what was that person thinking that day? Um, but the reality is that um, as long as you take... Um, you know, errors, because we all make errors, but as long as you really have a, 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 a great deal of sensitivity uh, towards that and, and look at it as a serious thing when you make an error, you won't make them. You won't make them as much because um, you'll realize that you have so much influence and that it's, it, you have, it's a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that we went to school or we were trained um, in order to avoid those things. But they do happen because we are human. They do happen. Um, I think, um, in my opinion, you know, coming from a newspaper background, I still believe that even though we've moved into a multimedia culture, I still have a lot of confidence in the things that I read in newspapers. I think that newspapers still are, you know, the source of. Uh, people that have been rooted in tr- the traditional um, training, and which is a universal concept of, you know, fair reporting and everything, and I think newspapers are still doing it. I think the pressure to expand has really, um, you know, forced newspapers to figure out ways to get into online and digital and video and all of these things on a limited budget. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you don't have... Uh, the resources to make, you know, uh, you know, all of the right investments that you want to make. But what's great about it is that a lot of the newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, have moved into uh, these new areas and been, you know, uh, on the forefront of trying to say, look, this is the way that this is 
the way that our uh, readers want their information now. Mm -hmm. And we can tell the story via a video, too. Let's do that. Let's Let's d develop some products for the iPad. Let's, mm -hmm. you know, let's give people information over the mobile platform. Mm -hmm. And that's really what the future might look like. As long as we keep our core values and we still approach our job in the same way that we approached it when we were just a newspaper, we'll be fine. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing, keeping uh, to your core values and core business. You can expand and you can grow uh, organically and you can adhere to the digital age, but you kind of have to stick to your, to, to your, uh, your roots in order to, uh, to keep the confidence of uh, the masses. I, and that's, again, that's my opinion. Right. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. And um, we have to really, what I try to do is, what's cool about my job is I'm able to meet so many people. I love people. Um, and I specifically like to talk to young people. Uh, I like to find out what they're listening to. I like to find out how they consume their information. Um, and, you know, one of the things, the, the helpful things about that is they are so plugged into social media and they know, you know, the most recent um, trends and development in the context of social media. And for me, in the past two years, social media has become like a really important aspect of my job. It's funny because I met you on Facebook. Right. And so, um, you know, getting those videos out there to a public that has demonstrated already that they're interested in the content that I provide is a big part of my job. And young people like the rapper Soldier Boy, who was one of the, these guys who was living down south and just started making videos at home and making little music videos and then putting them up on YouTube and seeing them over time explode into, mm -hmm. you know, 30,000 views, 40,000 views. He made himself a celebrity based on social media. Mm -hmm. So when you talk to him, it's really fascinating because he's almost like an Internet consultant. Mm -hmm. He never went to college or anything like that. He's a young guy. He's like 21, and he's been a star since he was 16. Mm -hmm. But when you talk to him about social media, uh, he is very savvy, more savvy than a lot of the executives that you come across. A lot of it is because he is a young person, and he's in touch with young people who are more open mm -hmm. to and have more time on their hands to actually explore new technologies. Well, can I ask your opinion, uh, Lee? Now, mm -hmm. you, you, you talked about uh, Soldier Boy. Now, when, when MC Hammer, when he came out, you know, he was doing. There was he didn't have the social media and the Twitter and the Facebook and everything else, but he was actually self-promoting. He was selling uh, CDs out of the back of his, his trunk and so on and so forth. You know, um, I mean, do you think because of the social media and the again the Facebooks, the Twitters, and everything, it's giving uh, I guess artists an opportunity to actually go out there and I mean reach such uh such a vast group of people that they can i guess be self-made stars yeah no you're so right about that you know that's what's cool about it because it, and it it says a lot about kind of the record companies too because the record companies aren't taking chances they rarely take chances on people uh, based on their talent. They don't walk into a bar or a club and say, wow, this guy's really talented, and then the next day this person is signed to a big record deal. That's a thing of the past. What happens now is people build these big 
uh, platforms on YouTube or and they use that to leverage sales on iTunes and they're able to establish over a certain period of time uh, that they can sell records and then that's when the record companies come. Um, that's why you see record companies that are much more inclined to sign someone that's been on the show X Factor mm-hmm. or American Idol because they know that that person has a built-in audience. Uh, you can look at YouTube and you can see that there are lots of bands uh, that really don't need a record company. They're going to continue to sell music with or without them. There are people that have shows on YouTube that really don't need uh, a television show Mm -hmm. because they're able to make revenues and advertising revenues and payments from YouTube based on their performance. So I think the the web is this incredible, uh, has had this incredible effect of democratization. It's, It's leveled the playing field to a certain extent uh, to, for the edgy people and the people that are in touch with what's happening culturally. And, you know, you can, you can spend a whole bunch of money. You can be the biggest company, uh, you know, a Fortune 100 company and spend tons of money uh, to make things go viral on the Internet and things. But if you're not in touch with the people and what the people want, you might get beat by some kids uh, you know, playing music out of their garage just because they're in touch with the people. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, like, I remember years ago, you know, you, ever, you had artists out there, singers, whatever the case may be, they were like, oh, my God, I hope someone signs us to a record deal. And I think now it's like, well, we there is no record. We don't care. We're, we're doing what we're doing because we can get ourselves out there our way. Yeah, right. But, you know, what's funny about it is, a lot of the young people have not made the connection hmm. between um, becoming a star and the value of your education. Right. Because it requires, when you, most of the celebrities that I interview are really smart when you really sit down and talk to them. Um, it's very difficult to make it if you don't have a marketing mind. You have to have some level of savvy. You have to be organized because you don't have a manager or a record company that's doing all of these things for you. So you have to think in a very strategic way about how you're going to position yourself uh, for the public to uh, consume uh, your music or consume your personality. And a lot of times studying and going to school and studying marketing and being around other students and things like that, that all helps because once you get to that level, you want to be able to handle it and to, mm-hmm. to feel like um, you're a person that, you know, for me, like, I, I it took me a while to realize this, but, like, school is just one of those things. Yes, of course you learn math and science and English, but you also learn how to start something and finish it and to meet a deadline and being on time. And isn't that fundamentally what we all have to do in the real world? And if we're celebrities and you have an interview with Lee Hawkins and you show up, and um, you show up two hours late, well, my staff might not even, you know, have time to accommodate you because we have some business leader here um, that has an interview. And so I've seen these opportunities squandered a lot of times mm-hmm. by celebrities because they don't think of them, some of them don't think of themselves as business people. The people that are the most successful um, as superstars are A, very good business people, and B, they are very humble and they're accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the people who, 
you know, the, you might be interviewing them and the publicist might say, we have one more question. And then that person will interrupt and say, you know what, I have time for one more. Mm-hmm. And there are, are people like that. I'll tell you a couple of the people uh, that, that have really impressed me uh, over the years as celebrities. I mentioned 50 Cent. Mm-hmm. 50 Cent is somebody who's really evolved over the years. Don't you remember he was known as somebody that was shot nine times, and he was this this um, almost a threatening figure in the public eye? Right. And then over time, he evolved. He did these business deals, and he got wealthy, and he got to a place where he was thinking, you know, I have all of these things, but I haven't necessarily contributed as much as I want back, and if I don't do that, I'm not going to feel good about myself. And so now he's working with the United Nations to try to feed a billion kids in mm-hmm. Africa. Yep. And, um, you know, whether he accomplishes it or not, um, wow, what a, a great thing to do. Another person is Garth Brooks. I sent a, and then a uh, request for Garth Brooks for an interview, and he actually wasn't in the place in his career at that point, point where he was, like, giving interviews. This was about three weeks ago where he just said, you know what, but he took time to read that request, and his publicist um, responded and said, you know, we want you to keep on checking in. It wasn't a thing where they just wrote me off. It was mm-hmm. a thing where they said, hey, you know what, Lee, we're engaged with you. We know what it is that you do, and hey, Garth does want to do something with you at some point. And I think people that are in control of their business and not just listening to what everybody's telling them, mm-hmm. uh, but actually saying, hey, this reporter wants to interview me. Let's see who this person is at Billboard. Let's mm-hmm. see who this guy is over at New York Times. And to actually be engaged in the decisions, those are the people that make themselves stars. Lady Gaga is another one. Uh, she's a very, very smart person. I was gonna, I was gonna say that. You know, she's probably on. She's, she's up there for sure. I do think that there's a point, however, um, that um, some of these people get so big. In Lady Gaga's case, when I interviewed her, I do believe that there was a nervousness um, about. She was very cautious about the information that she shared or the answers that she gave to the questions uh, because of the fact that she is such an uber uber star and celebrity and she's been burned in the past uh, by the press. And as a result of that, she, she was very kind of guarded at some points of the interview. And, and do you, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I mean, I can see why she would be because if you... Or, or talking to someone in the media, and they're twisting your words, or they're not asking you questions or guiding you in the right direction to really get the, the true information out, and they just want to get what they want out of it. Um, yeah, I, I, I can see that being problematic for someone. Yeah, you know, and you know, as we discussed earlier, if you're a journalist, you don't have an obligation to report all positive things about people. As a matter of fact, you'll never get respect even from that person mm-hmm. if you just report all positive things and you ignore uh, other things. But um, what everybody deserves, and this is what I try to give everybody, an opportunity to tell their side of the story. Right. So, you know, when and I don't think everybody always does that, you know, um, in the tabloid culture. Um, that's not, you know, you don't even really get a lot of time in those kinds of interviews. But mm-hmm. uh, that's why I like to do the long interviews. If you look at some of my interviews, they tend to be 10 or 15 minutes. And you give people a chance to speak, you know, um, 
one of the things that's been used against me or has been a knock against me and also uh, looked at, I've been praised for, is that I'm a low-key guy. And when I do these interviews, I actually listen to what people say and I think before I speak. Uh, I'm not coming out with a lot of energy all of the time. Um, I'm trying to get people to really give me candid um, answers. So when you ask a Michael Vick, um, you know, are you really, uh, do you regret um, this, this, the, the fact that you had to go to jail? And he actually told me, no, I actually believe that um, it was something that I needed to do because it made me a new person. Um, and then I asked him, really, are you serious? Wouldn't you take it back if you could? And he said, no, I wouldn't. And so, but giving people a chance to talk instead of cutting them off, Mm-hmm. And to tell their side of the story instead of jumping to immediate judgment is what I try to do with celebrities because um, so few of them are really ever given that opportunity. And a lot of times when they get that opportunity, they're really afraid to take it because they don't trust uh, the media. Well, I mean, I think coming them going on your show and how you handle things uh, I think more and more they're going to understand going on your show is the opportunity that, that they need. Um, well, I hope you're right. You know, I really don't have a show yet. Um, I just, you know, my show, my my videos appear on the WSJ.com um, website and on YouTube. We have a channel on YouTube and we also have WSJ Live. But um, I think, you know, I do hope and pray that a show is in my future because I really enjoy this work. Um, I don't see anybody else doing it either, but I also, you know, just enjoy, like I said, I enjoy people and I really want on that platform and to give people a platform to really get into, um, not just about being a singer or being a baseball player, but what about some of the backstories? I mean, you know, People are fascinating. Celebrities, when you really look at them and you ask them about their families and things like that, you know, um, one guy, I'll just share one one story. Uh, there was a baseball player named Tory Hunter. He plays for the Anaheim Angels. And I met him a few years ago when I did a documentary. And in that interview, we were at his house, and I asked him how many brothers he had how many siblings he had, and he said he had three brothers. Well, I interviewed him maybe about a year later, and I said, oh, how are your brothers? You have three brothers. And he said, well, guess what? I actually have four. I found out on Christmas Day that my father, uh, he told us that, that he found out that he had a son that he didn't know about. And so at Christmas dinner, his father pulls out a picture of this kid that lived in his neighborhood not too far where they grew up, uh, but he was younger, and they never really knew this kid existed. Well, fast forward all of these years, this kid was a track star and had no idea where he got his uh, athletic ability because he didn't know who his father was. Hmm. But at the end of the day, it came out that Tory Hunter's father, of course, was a decorated athlete, but he ended up going into the Vietnam War. But um, And that kind of ended his athletic career. But Tory went on to play Major League Baseball. And this kid, guess what? He went, to court, he went to West Point Academy and was on the track team and set an indoor track record. Wow. And then 
he went and served in Iraq. So what are the chances of a guy being a, a major league baseball player and also having a brother that attends West Point Academy from where they grew up in mm-hmm. Arkansas, a very tough neighborhood, Pine Bluff, Arkansas? Um, that was, you know, those were really difficult odds. But what was great about it is I got the chance to go and interview both Tory Hunter and to attend his brother's graduation and to be there with his father, with the kid's real father and real mother, and to be able to see them see their son graduate from West Point Academy. And the positive example that that sets for all kids, but also especially African-American kids. And that, you know, those are the kinds of stories that I want to tell about athletes. I want to get beneath the surface into their humanity as people and how they're affected by sudden fame and and sudden wealth as young people. I mean, think about the experience, you know, um, of being 23 years old and knowing you sit down with Lee Hawkins and you're knowing in the back of your mind that tomorrow you're going to go in the first round of the NFL draft. And your life will never be the same financially. It's heavy there stuff. is, it is. I mean, when you look at these guys, they're, they they come in and they they they're almost they want to put off this feeling of overconfidence. But a lot of them, you can tell, they're actually real nervous about what they're going into, because um, you can read about that experience, but you never really know what it's like until you're living it. No. I mean, you you bring, as you said, you bring that humanity, uh, you bring it out, and you bring that because they're real people, and I mean, you're you're telling that story, and I think that is what inspires people. Thank you. Yeah, I think it does. You know, um, we, you know, there are there now there are the people that are really interested in, um, you know, what who someone's dating or. Uh, you know, those kinds of gossipy type things. And I just leave that to those people that really want to report on that. But for me, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's a guy, John Jones, who's the face of the ultimate fighting. And this guy has two brothers that are actually playing in the NFL. What are the odds of that? And, you know, to, to think about the camaraderie between those brothers and if they work uh, you know, worked out together and pushed each other hard to be athletes and were their parents athletes. And, you know, those kinds of things are pretty cool, too. You know, I mean, those are the stories. There's a place for every journalist, and mm-hmm. I think that um, it's important for you to find where you excel. And for me, it's interesting that I have a love for music because when I listen to the music, of a lot of the people I interview, I really listen to it both as a journalist and a musician, mm-hmm. and I'm able to relate to them and ask questions that I really took time to think about um, because, you know, I might even ask them, so what kind of gear are you recording on? And I might ask them, what is your songwriting process? And what do you think about, um, you know, why did you choose to, to modulate the key in this area? And, you know, what I find is when people show up to, to uh, interview with me, I I don't send an intern down to get them in the lobby. I go down and get them. Mm-hmm. And I go down personally to shake their hand. And when we're up going up on the elevator, I actually, you know, have a conversation with them, both because I'm, I'm curious 
about them and any unanswered questions that I might have before we start the interview. But also, I want them to know, hey, I took the time to study you. I took the time to research you, and I know the fact that you grew up in this town. I know it was interesting that you went to college for three years, but you dropped out mm-hmm. uh, and took a chance on becoming an actor or went to L.A. and struggled for two years, and then finally you got your big role. Um, they appreciate that stuff, and what happens, you can just see it on their face. They start to open up when they sit in that chair because that level of trust starts to go up. I think people that I really admire, like Oprah Winfrey mm-hmm. and um, some of the more, um, you know, really hardcore, like uh, traditional journalists like Tom Brokaw and people like that, they tend to, or Diane Sawyer, somebody who has a level of compassion mm-hmm. that I think makes people feel comfortable when they sit in her chair. And that's what I try to do. I try mm-hmm. to study people like that. I study Charlie Rose as well. Yeah, well, Charlie Rose, yeah, he's uh, he's he's definitely uh, high up there as far as interview interviewers go. Yeah, but I think w- w- what you do is that you make a sh- a connection, and uh, yeah, hopefully, not all the time. Sometimes you do these interviews, particularly with athletes, uh, because. And I think as journalists, we have to accept some of the responsibility because we don't always ask. You know, after a guy's played a game, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, we just ask, so how do you feel about your performance? And what is the guy going to say? He's going to say, well, you know, we went out there and played hard and just wasn't in the cards today. They outplayed us and we got to come back tomorrow. You know, and, yeah. and that doesn't, when I hear those things and someone sits in my chair, you know, I I cringe. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it I kind of lose um, my momentum and my what I need to be able to do good because this person is speaking to me in sound bite. And so I have to ask myself, what am I doing to make this person feel like they can't talk to me? And part of it is because they give so many interviews. Mm-hmm. And so that's the challenge of a journalist to try to get that person all out of that zone. And so that's why trust is such a big deal. Mm-hmm. And that's why when um, when I talk to a publicist, I tell them, you know, feel free to share my work with this person. Feel free to let this person um, see the work I've done because you want that person to come into the chair having some background and saying, okay, yeah, this guy is, uh, you know, this guy likes the long interviews. This mm-hmm. guy wants me to speak. But more importantly, this guy is in touch with the culture. Right. Uh, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, I like the young people, and I also don't think that the world, um, you know, I I appreciate the diversity in the world. And so, you know, I can see the, the ingenuity in someone like 50 Cent. I can see the ingenuity in someone like uh, like Sean Combs or mm-hmm. You know, and when you see Mark Wahlberg, and when you see these people and what they've been able to accomplish in business, and you give them the credence and the respect a lot of times to spend the time to study actually what they accomplished, it opens up a whole world that isn't being covered by the traditional media. And so it's kind of funny sometimes to hear to hear some people interview some of these guys because you can tell that they necessarily they haven't necessarily 
been part of the culture as an observer. Mm-hmm. They're just going based on, you know, what they think about someone. And with the kids especially, the kids are are kind of, uh, you know, insulted by that. You know, they're more likely to turn the video off because if you sit down with someone like a, like a Sean Combs and you say something like, oh, so, um, you know, how did you get to where you are? I mean, there are certain things that are already in the public's conscience that mm-hmm. the public already knows because this guy is a pop culture icon. Right. And just because you haven't been paying attention to the pop culture doesn't mean that everybody should stop and allow you to play catch-up. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's it's a partially about the respect that we have for everybody in the world and to understand that there are people in this country that have come up from the fringes of society, people that have been disruptors. They may not have written a Harvard thesis. They may have had trouble early in their life, but somewhere along the way, they figured out to be shrewd business people. They figured out how to um, use street smarts or, or how to um, use their charisma and, and, and get on track and become successful business people. And I'm really fascinated by those people. That's why I don't ever want to write anybody off or to ever underestimate uh, people until I really like, you know, I need to, I feel like I need to sit down and find out the key to their success. Mm -hmm. You find these incredible stories when you do. You're kind of like pulling a little, um, pulling, pulling the layers off. Okay, and getting to the to the core of them because again, a lot of I guess a lot of uh, celebrity sports stars they'll be interviewed and they, they I guess they feel like a number, and you're doing something different than that and and I I appreciate that because you're allowing them to tell their story, you you open the door. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, there's and it's funny because so many of these people they may have accomplished all of these incredible feats but they have these these areas where they're very still very insecure you know and sometimes it could be you know the relationship with their parents or or coming up in a single parent home or it can be that you know people at home you know never i'll give you an example there's a singer um one of i can't remember who it was but there was a singer that i interviewed that uh was from europe and had built this huge following in Europe, but gotten dropped from the record company, and then was picked up by a company in the United States. And just knowing everything that I, I picked up about how stars are made, I said, well, you know, why don't you go back and also do some performances in your home, you know, your home country? And why don't you, uh, you know, um, do some viral videos because you've got a big following there. You could probably get, you know, a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand hits just based on the the audience that you had already built. And this person was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that because I had a bad experience with the record company and, uh, you know, they didn't support me there. And that person had like almost a chip on their shoulder about the difficult period that they had in that country and really was missing out on the broader, um, opportunity to tap in and mm-hmm. to, to pro- provide music for people who loved 
their music and supported them from the beginning. Right. Well, you know, you know, with someone like that and that type of story, the only thing, the only thing that comes to mind to me is boo-hoo. Okay, you, you, <laughs> you, you, you got, you got, you got shunned by a record company. But what does that have to do with your fans? You, you, you have to be there. Well, for right, them. and yeah. that's true. But you know, in order to be, it's kind of crazy because in order to be a celebrity. Um, a lot of people, you know, they have to be narcissistic or they have to have these outsized personalities in order to to be a celebrity. You know, Michael Jordan uh, was is one of the examples of a guy who, when he was playing basketball, he had one of the highest scored games in his career. And he, he admitted when he was um, inducted into the Hall of Fame that in one of those games, he actually missed a, a dunk on purpose because he wanted the opposing team's fans to boo him because that's what he knew motivated him, people doubting him. Mm -hmm. And so um, the psychology, everybody has different psychology, and the psychology of a lot of these famous people has a lot to do with, you know, like being doubted and not being accepted and coming from the fringes and wanting to prove people wrong and wanting to have the right to be who they really are and have it be accepted broadly. And, you know, uh, Lady Gaga is a person who said that she wasn't always considered an attractive person and still doesn't consider herself an attractive person conventionally. But, um, hey, what did she do with that? She took it and used it to her advantage and said, I'm going to be who I am. Mike Jones, another one, this rapper, he had a song called, uh, you know, he was known for saying, Mike Jones, who? Mike Jones, who? And I was always wondering, I always asked him, you know, why did you, how did you come up with that? Where you say Mike Jones, who? Mike Jones, who in every song? And he said, you know what? When I was on the streets promoting my records, I would go up to people um, and I would say, hey, do you want to buy my CD? And they would say, who are you? And then he would say, oh, my name is Mike Jones. And he was all, you know, motivated and feeling good about his project. And then they would say, who? <laughs> and when they would say, who? feel so discouraged and he said he went home and he talked to his grandmother and he she said what's going on you seem like you're down and he said well you know when i get out here man it's really hard because people you know they don't want to accept because i'm not known i'm not a known quality and when i give them my cd they say who and she told him use that take that perceived weakness and turn that into a strength. You put that into your music, and he did, and he blew up as a result of that. Well, you go, Grandma. You know, like you always need that one person to kind of put your thinking in, in the right direction. Uh, every, every, you do every, it. Yeah, everyone has that, that that person in their life, I think. Or if they don't, they should. If, you know, it's best man. You just touched on like a really uh, important factor. I can tell you that. Um, at every critical stage in my life, I've always had somebody um, that really, you know, believed and gave selflessly and said, you know what, man, this might be a difficult period for you, but, you know, stay humble, stay in prayer. Uh, you have the talent. You have the talent to move forward. I mean, look, the media business is a very, very uh, competitive business. It's a rough business. When I got into um, television and, me 
initially, I really wasn't ready for it. I was very nervous when I would go on the air. Uh, it, it took me a while, but get comfortable. Um, when you see a lot of these people that are celebrities or, or television show hosts, um, a lot of them have three and four shows that fail and get taken off the air because of poor ratings before they actually become successful and have that wildly successful show. Now, if you're blessed enough to get another chance, then great. But if you look at each one of these um, celebrities, somewhere in there, there's some level of uh, failure in the beginning. If you look at Katy Perry, mm -hmm. she was just a person that was out in uh, California trying to make it. She had a lot of setbacks, but she just refused to accept defeat. Mm-hmm. No, I mean that. I mean, you, forget about celebrities. Let's just talk about history. You know, Thomas Edison. You know, you're going to fail more times you, than you succeed, but those successes are going to be oh so glorious. You know, that changed everything. Uh, you can go to Steve Jobs, Bill Gates. You can go to any any influential person in the the history uh, of the world, for that matter, and you'll always find that they failed more than they succeeded. You're right, and therein lies uh, the value, I believe, in, in what I'm trying to do with the business of celebrity, mm -hmm. is to show um, that these people are the same, you know, that they, too, have these, these stories about their lives and stories about their businesses and their brands and how they built them up, and they're, they're just no different uh, than any of us. And, you know, people ask me, are you, do you get nervous? when you, um, you know, interview certain celebrities because you're, like, dealing with a famous person. And you know what? I can say I really don't because I see um, the people that I interview are, um, they tend to be authentic people. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because they say, you know what, they've taken the time to uh, really consider my pitch and because I'm not, Today show, and I'm not Good Morning America, but they've taken the time to watch my videos and say, wow, you know what? I like this guy. He may not have 7.5 million viewers a day, but um, I'm going to go and sit in his chair. And so as a result of that, um, those people, a lot of them are like really down to earth people as from the beginning. And so it makes it very easy uh, to interview them. I have had some experiences um, where people have not been, you know, they just haven't been cool people. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you try to get, you try to get a conversation going with them, and they give you one word answers or whatever. And but usually, I find that those are people that are really just beginning to come into success, mm -hmm. or maybe they've had about a year of success, and it's gone to their head, and they don't really know how to handle it. But I find that the superstars. The Lionel Richies, the um, you know, the Gene Simmons, uh, a lot of these kinds of people. Paul Stanley of Kiss, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal interview. A lot of these people are approachable because they understand the interdependence mm -hmm. uh, between the media and and their celebrity. Paris Hilton is a person who's very, very aware of that fact, and that's why she's had so much success in her life, whether you really like her or not, or uh, she's somebody that really understands the media, and particularly the paparazzi. Mm -hmm. She does not run 
from the paparazzi. You notice that? Yeah. She doesn't run over them with their car. She doesn't treat them like like you're you're annoying me. She embraces them and she takes pictures and she realizes that when they take pictures of her, they put all of these images on the internet. And those when those pictures get forwarded, it reinforces her brand. Mm-hmm. And so these people may just be people that are intuitively aware of the value that the media provides to them, and they are aware that they cannot afford to alienate the media. And so, you know, they're they're savvy, and when they sit down in their chair, they're willing to show a side of themselves that's real. Well, they understand the marketing principles, and they, they understand that, you know what, without reaching the masses, you're really not, your brand kind of loses a lot of its uh, luster. Um, and that that's the reality of, of the situation with that, you know, um, and I think that like a Paris Hilton and, and people, uh, Lady Gaga, they have, I mean, they're doing it themselves, but they also have smart people around them telling them, hey, this is what you need to do in order to get to where you need to get to and get your brand where you need it to, to get to so you can, you know, monetize it a little more. Uh, I don't think they're they're actually doing it solo. Oh, you better believe they're not. Um, I'll give you an example. Behind Lady Gaga is a name, a guy named Troy Carter, um, who, you know, basically uh, worked, carried crates for Will Smith and also worked for Sean Coombs, you know, as a young guy coming up in the music industry and learned a lot from those people. And then the fact that he himself is brilliant really helped uh, Lady Gaga. And a lot of people don't know this guy. But he's just, uh, you know, he's a smart business person. And then the people that broke her into India, they have a website called DesiHits.com, Ron Janang Bath, and they work with celebrities all over the world, not just in the United States, but in India. They work with Priyanka Chopra, who is one of the biggest Bollywood stars. And they specifically have uh, the, the niche of being able to know that market and to teach celebrities how to break in and how to sell records in India. And if you don't know that market, then you can't penetrate that market because it's not like the U.S. market. Mm-hmm. And um, they're very brilliant. And so um, Lady Gaga becoming a huge brand is about that, about being able to learn from someone like Jimmy Iovine at, uh, Jimmy Iovine at Interscope Records and, and to to, to respond, not just to learn from those people, but to respond to what they're saying and to be able to take direction and then to have some level of independence yourself and being able to say, hey, you know what, my gut, I developed my gut and my gut is telling me that we should not associate with that brand. Or my gut is telling me that, um, you know, we should do a deal where uh, Amazon sells my CD for 99 cents to increase the likelihood that uh, we reach a million units the first week my album comes out because if I don't reach a million units, it could really, really hurt my brand Mm -hmm. because my first album was so highly successful. Those are shrewd people Mm -hmm. that have put a lot of thought into marketing uh, and they're marketing people and they're not really any different 
than the Apples of the world or the Googles of the world, the innovative people that are saying, let's figure out a way to really touch people and get this brand in every home in America. And I think that's a key word, innovative. You know, even uh, in your, you're an author of, of a book, A New Bow Nation. Okay, and and you have you know innovative people uh, that that you're kind of like uh, pointing at. And, it is, yeah. and you know we didn't put the book out, but we did do a. Uh, we ended up doing a documentary about it, New Bows, the Rise of America's New Black Overclass on CNBC, and that was really about uh, a lot of the innovative people that have been overlooked, um, African American young people that have you know, done pretty well with their brands at a young age. And one uh, person that I highlighted in that was LeBron James. This was before LeBron James decided to go to Miami. Uh, and one of the things, I was the first person to, like, really report on television LeBron's uh, ability uh, to see that he wanted to have the people in his camp, the young African-American men, uh, some of them that he grew up with, to handle one piece of his marketing uh, and to develop him into, you know, a brand. He put a lot of trust in them, and I talked to them a lot about the challenge of being underestimated because they didn't necessarily look like uh, they were traditional business people. But you know what? Some of these brands are better if they're not developed by a traditional business person mm -hmm. because the traditional business people are not always in touch with, once again, what the people really want. It's mm -hmm. not always about marketing theory. And so talking to him, talking to a guy named this guy, uh, Birdman, um, Brian Williams, who is like at the head, him and his brother own Cash Money Records, and they've got... Uh, Little Wayne, and they've got Nicki Minaj and Drake, and the top people in the music industry right now. These guys came from New Orleans from nothing, and they built this into a multi-million-dollar company. Once again, Brian Williams has a half of half a million dollars of platinum in his mouth. Hmm. Okay, and this is not a guy <laughs> that looks like uh, he's going to be on Wall Street. But what's interesting about him? is I asked him, did you ever consider just like getting a job in corporate America? And he said, no, I never even considered working for anybody else. When I was a kid, my dad owned a bar, and I saw how he was. I saw that he had an entrepreneurial spirit, and I just wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I never thought of being anything else. And guess what? He's damn good at it. He's run one of the biggest record companies in the world, independent record companies in the world. And guess what? A lot of um, people really that don't know the culture don't even know about this guy. Mm. And this guy sold millions of records. Well, I mean, he... he actually billions of records. But, you know, someone like that, this, this is a guy behind the scenes that actually makes the magic. And you always have the guys behind the scenes making the magic. And just him, at an early age, he learned, uh, he learned the, uh, an important lesson. Be a leader, not a follower. And he, he right, yeah, 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 and that's yeah exactly be a leader, right. not a follower. But and you know, leaders are not always. Uh, you know, a lot of times, it takes a while to figure that out. Leaders can be reluctant, reluctant leaders. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you see that a lot on sports teams. You know, some of these 
celebrities. Um, Brian, uh, Justin Tuck, which is a really good example of a guy who he's a defensive end for the uh, New York Giants, and I just interviewed him a couple weeks ago. He started out the Super Bowl winning season with one of the worst performances that he ever had put up. He had one game for the first time in his whole career that he didn't even get a tackle. And then um, it took him a while to come back. And over time, at one point of the season, he had written off the chances that his team would even make the playoffs. Well, lo and behold, they made the Super Bowl and they won it. Mm-hmm. But this is a guy that's not really like always needing to be out front. And over time, the team really selected him. You know, another kid is a guy named Russell Wilson who just uh, was just drafted in the second round by the Seattle Seahawks. He's like 5'10", 205 pounds. He's about four inches shorter than your average quarterback in the NFL and maybe about 15 um, pounds lighter. Everybody thought that this kid would never make it as an NFL quarterback and that he would be drafted in the fourth round, even though he put up phenomenal numbers for the University of Wisconsin uh, and took them to the Big Ten Championship and took them to the Rose Bowl. It still wasn't enough because he didn't fit the mold physically, people thought, that a quarterback should fit. But the Seahawks took a chance on him, and now some people have jumped on board, and they're saying that he could be uh, the best rookie quarterback to ever be in the NFL. And so for me, what is my job? To find out what kind of drives you when all these people are doubting you. What drives you when uh, you've just thrown a touchdown pass, and then you go on the sidelines and you see your team give up an interception and they run it back, and now you're back down again because this is a guy who – Um, is known for playing under pressure. And you know what he told me when I asked him how how he deals with the pressure so well? You know what he told me? What did he tell you? He told me, my dad died. And the fact that his father's death and everything that he had gone through, um, you know, when his father died and before his father died and developing faith, Mm-hmm. And, you know, feeling that the fact that he had faith gave him a calm that, you know, normal people don't, people without faith, he felt, don't usually have because they're, you know, they don't believe in themselves. And mm-hmm. so for him, that was how he felt, that his faith was something that would make him sit on the sideline and just say, okay, all right, no, I can do this. I know I can do this, and I want to just go out here and do it. There's no need in crying. There's no need in being afraid. I'm just going to go out here and throw a a touchdown pass. And, you know, those are people that really make it. The the talkers never make it. It's the doers that make it. You know, people. But these are the same people that inspire people. As I mentioned earlier, they they inspire people to say, wow, you know what? Yeah, I can. Yeah, and you really need to to believe that. And you touched on a really good point earlier where you talked about having people that believe in you, too. Mm -hmm. I do think it's important to have one or two people that uh, you trust that tell you, you know, hey, you know, you can make it. You know, I used to have teachers. I had teachers when I was a kid growing up. Um, Well, I'll tell you this. When I was in sixth grade, I was... uh, 
I was playing around so much in school with my friends and everything in sixth grade that I got a D in English. <laughs> I got a D in English and then went on to become a journalist. <laughs> yeah. The... <laughs> but, 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 you know, if you, if, if you had gone to my teachers that saw me in that period of my life when school wasn't, a, I was a sixth grader and school wasn't a, priority for me because I didn't understand how it really fit in uh, to the equation for success in my life. And I was really more wanting to be accepted by my friends and thinking that it was cool to not pay attention in class and all those things. If you went to those teachers um, and said, this kid is going to be, you know, a Wall Street Journal reporter, he's going to have a, uh, you know, over a decade career of writing and and, and working uh, in the press and communicating, they might not believe me. But then again, there was always that one teacher that said, you know what, Lee, I know you're better than this. And I know your parents. And if you don't get it together, I'm going to tell them. <laughs> because you're going to be more than what people are expecting you to be. And that kind of thing, um, as a black kid growing up, in a in Minnesota, in a very uh, non-diverse setting, right. were the things that I needed to hear. And over time, those few people that really spent the time to influence me and to make sure that I was nurtured and everything, mm-hmm. those are the people, that was all I needed. Those were the drive I needed. I needed role models, and I needed good peers, too. I needed those kids that said, hey, man, no, man, let's pay attention, man. Let's let's get it together. And that's what I try to impart to the young people. You're never defeated until you give up on yourself. Mm-hmm. And you know what I'm saying? Oh. Most of the times when, when, people me- when people mess up, they don't have to worry about other people. The biggest enemies a lot of times are ourselves. Mm-hmm. If we can get on our own side, we can be successful. Well, you know, I, I love hearing the story about the teacher and pushing you because, as I said earlier, some, you just need that one person to believe in you, that one person to take uh, a boot to you for you to wake up and understand that, hey, you know what, this is your life, one time around, and you have to make the most of it. You have to live up to your potential, and that's what happened with you. And I think that's fantastic. <laughs> and you're telling the stories uh, from, from, uh, of other people that have done the same. One thing that happened to me, too, and I will tell you this, is um, when you see me on television, uh, a lot of times, you see me wearing the American flag on my lapel. And I'll tell you, I've been asked, people have asked me in the past, the people that know me have asked me, man, why are you wearing the flag? And they kind of look at wearing the flag like kind of almost a nerdy thing or something that you're not supposed to do or, you know, just kind of question wearing the flag because you're, I guess people are expected to see, you know, older people like Lou Dobbs or, you know, people that are really conservative on TV playing uh, or wearing the flag. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you something. When I was a young person, I learned about my family history. It was something that I didn't even know. And when I learned about my family history, and I really sat back and thought about uh, my grandfather who worked on the railroad and then also worked another job as a janitor at a department store for 25 years 
uh, to, so that, you know, he could buy a home and he, he was, he was in the union and he could buy a home and really like set it up for future generations of the family to be able to go to college and to be able to do these things. Um, and he told me about my great, great, great grandfather, Isaac Blakey, who was a, um, slave in Mississippi back when in the Civil War time frame, he actually ran away and enlisted in the Civil War. And what's interesting about that is my family has two different names. Blakey and White are the last names from that side of the family. We're all related, but we have two different names because when my, when Isaac Blakey was on the plantation, um, his slave master's mother or daughter got married to a guy. And when she got married, he gave, the slave master gave his daughter and her new husband, my grandfather and my grandfather's mother, as a wedding gift. So now they were their property. Mm-hmm. And when he went into the war and enlisted in the civil right in the uh, Union Army to fight uh, for his freedom, uh, he used the slave master, his second slave master's name. And that made it so my family, for the rest of our lives, would have two different last names. Hmm. When he got out of the Civil War, he actually went home and found his brothers and sisters that he was separated from when he was given away as a birth or as a, as a uh, wedding gift. Uh, and he reunited with them, and he ended up having a family and, and becoming a farmer and, and building a farm. But then he also put positioned all of the, my all of his kids to be successful. And so for all I'm saying is knowing that I come from that rich history where people really didn't even have an opportunity for education, and they didn't have an oppor- the opportunities that I have, how could I not go on uh, to to try and be a successful journalist. When you know your history and you know the sacrifices that people made before you, Mm -hmm. you take life a lot more seriously. And I'll tell you one thing, I didn't really start to take life seriously until I started studying, studying my own history and studying the history of the black people. Mm -hmm. And it was a wake-up call to you in, in in a way. Yeah, and it's not just black people, but it's, you know, a lot of people in America. We have this this great melting pot, but we have all of these immigrants. And these immigrant stories, you know, are very powerful. You know, they're very powerful to think that, you know, um, people can, their people can come from being persecuted to actually come into the United States and having... Uh, success and they're shut out from society's mainstream from the beginning so they start their own businesses supported by their own people and then down the line you know that second or third generation those are the people that are admitted into the ivy league schools and things like that and see that's what the american dream affords the opportunity is to in its purest sense in its purest sense that that's what it's supposed to be that we're supposed to um give people opportunities, um, and if they seize those opportunities and they live an honest life, they can get ahead and be successful. And I, I really believe that um, you're cheating yourself when you really don't try. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what knowing your history teaches you. So it's not really a simple answer. There's not a simple answer for how I ended up uh, where I am in life. Mm-hmm. But I think that one of the things is studying other people has, and their success has um, helped me figure out my own strategies for success. Well, I, I think, you know, you just summed it up, you know, as far as uh, your, your background goes and, and why you do the things you do. Um, and I and I think and I have to thank you for doing the things you do because you bring a lot of things to light, whether it be on CNBC, whether it be uh, doing uh, your interviews or doing whatever you're doing, because I know that over time your your reach is going to get greater and greater and greater, and you're going to have some more amazing people speaking to you, and you're, you're gonna you're gonna be telling the stories that you know what maybe some people are afraid to tell, or afraid to ask. But you're not. You're doing that, Lee, and I thank you for that. Thank you, and I thank you for the opportunity uh, for what you're doing. I mean, to even find me. Uh, you're the first guy that's really um, interviewed me specifically specifically about this new business of celebrity thing, and I've been really doing it for like two years. So uh, for you to, to see that and to believe in that, that means something to me. You know, I appreciate that. I appreciate all of uh, the people that take the time to watch my work uh, and to look Google me and look up my my videos and to friend me on Facebook and Twitter because we're on an on-demand culture now. Mm -hmm. And what that means is when people follow you, that that's an indication that they want to see your product and they want to see what you create. And for me, that's my core audience. The people that join my email list, that's my core audience that I never want to alienate because those are the people that from the beginning appreciate what I'm doing. And those are the audience, that's the people that I'm trying to speak with right now, and then I can grow my audience from there. Well, I mean, I think it's going to continue to grow, and look, you have my support a thousand percent, and uh, again, I just see what you're doing just just growing, Um, and as more people get to hear the interviews and you bring in more more people to you, as I said before, it's just going to be a snowball effect, and it's for the better, and you inspire people with these interviews, and especially the youth and how you you actually uh, put it together to target them, fantastic. Fantastic. You know, uh, Lee, let, let me ask you, um, maybe you want to let our listeners know how they can they can follow you, a uh, website, uh, you know, what, what information can you give them so they can follow what sure. you're doing? Oh, oh, thank you very much. Um, sure. Well, I can be found at Twitter. So it's at Lee Hawkins, ampersand sign, just the name Lee Hawkins, L-E-E-H-A-W-K-I-N-S. I also have a Facebook page on Google, so if you just Google Lee Hawkins, you'll see my Facebook page. And if you do that and you send me your email address, I'll add you on uh, my email to get an early look at my videos. I usually put out one or two celebrity interviews a week, and uh, I try to get them to my fans before I put them out uh, on social media. I put them out to my email list. So... Uh, that's how you can get me. And if you want to hear my music, just go on iTunes and um, type in Lee Hawkins. I mean, what's fascinating about things now in the information uh, economy is that um, all you need is a name. 
Mm-hmm. You could have business cards printed up that just say your name on them and not even your email address or your number. And people can figure out how to find you. Oh, yeah. All they have to do is just type your name into Google. Information age, my friend, information age. And, you know, uh, again, you know, for our listeners, you know, follow Lee Hawkins. Go to Twitter, at uh, Lee Hawkins. Follow him. Follow this guy's career. Uh, go uh, on YouTube. Go, uh, go online. Find out more about him because you're going to hear more and more about him as the weeks and months and years go by because this guy's the real deal. Uh, Lee. I, I want to thank you for coming on the UCW radio show. This this was awesome. Uh, we took the time to, to, to touch on a lot of things. And I think uh, we're going to have you on another time because we just, I think we just scratched the surface with you, my man. I think we have a lot more to go. Oh, man. <laughs> well, God bless you. And I thank you for the opportunity to be on the show. And I would love to be a guest anytime you want. Excellent. So you keep up the good work, my man. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate it. And we're gonna we're gonna leave everyone uh, with your song, uh, "I Love You, Woman," and so they can hear your stuff on the UCW radio show. But we're gonna have you back on another time, Lee. Thank you again. Okay, buddy. God bless you Take all. Take care. Bye bye.
Ladies and gentlemen, my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you.